Andrea worked at a bakery restaurant under the convention hotel. At first it was fine, waiting on the conventioneers. But then you start to dread them. I mean, absolutely. You're like, no, not another convention. They just flip me out. I was just listening and watching them. I'm getting them their croissants and their coffee. Fact is, when people are together with others of their own kind, they act differently. They just... Th- this thing happens. I mean, you're so focused into this one aspect of your life that you just sort of become... that you just absorb into that whole facet of your life. You become that facet of your life. You become that facet of your life, yeah. If one Mary Kay saleswoman walks up to your bakery counter, you don't think twice about it. But 90 of them, that's something completely different. And so they're just, there's just like this excitement level. They're like really bubbly and they've got all this bright colored makeup on, you know, pinks, blues, just, you know. Oh, of course, because they're, they're convention with their peers, so they have to impress each other. It's not even oh, like they're. Oh, yeah. You're right, right. It's not like they're undercover, like, oh, we can go to the convention and not wear makeup. I mean, they were just made up to like the nines. I mean, it was crazy. So I'm just looking at them and lying like I've never seen more makeup in my entire life. But they were just covered. just And just the most awkward. It, I mean, everything looked like it was a mistake. Just the most awkward, strange colors and just things I would... D- oh, Andre, that just goes to show how far <laughs> from, from the light you are. <laughs> just how far you are from the Mary Kay way. I know. Math teachers made me particularly nervous because math is my nemesis. I'm awful at math. And I thought, okay, you know, you're working at the bakery counter. They can't hurt you. They, they're not going to quiz you. You're not going to have algebra, you know. No. They get, you know, I tell them their, their amount, and they, you know, and then they give me their money, and I'm sitting there trying to figure it out. And then all of a sudden they're like, well, wait, wait, let me give you, you know, five cents, and then you can give me this back, you know. And they, like, totally, I, by the end of the day, my drawer was totally off because they just blow my mind at the last minute. And plus I'm, <laughs> I hate math, so then I'm getting, like, really nervous. I'm like, I can't do this. I can't do this. I'm having flashbacks from seventh grade, you know, failing math. And I'm like, I can't do it. I just can't do it. Was that the worst they did? Did they do little math, you know, tricks with the change? You know, like, (laughs) oh, that's a prime. (laughs) (laughs) No. (laughs) Well, from WBEZ Chicago and Public Radio International, it is This American Life. I'm Ira Glass. Each week on our program, of course, we choose a theme, invite a variety of writers and reporters and performers to take a whack at that theme. Today's program, Conventions and who we become when we attend them. Act 1, Dark Shadows. What happens when 2,000 people come together who have nothing more in common than the fact that they watch television? Act 2, Dish Out of Water, in which Dishwasher Pete brings us the story of a lowly restaurant employee who attends the national convention designed for restaurant bigwigs, his own bosses. Act 3, When Worlds Collide, a story that starts in a convention, center where two different conventions happen to be taking place, where two different people from different worlds happen to meet, and what happens next that takes them far from the convention. Stay with us. Act one. What was Catherine who really wanted to go to the Dark Shadows convention? Catherine was the one who was the fanatic. At least, that's what John says. It, it, 
it filled something in her. It, it was almost like she was an empty glass and dark shadows filled her glass. Whatever was missing in her life at that moment filled her glass. And she could watch it continually and would laugh and roar and got so involved with the characters. And, and How many would she watch? Let's just get that fact out she there. She would watch eight hours a day. Eight hours of dark shadows eight a, hours day. a day. Uh, approximately eight hours a day. Damn. Eight hours a day. Every day of the slowest, creakiest TV show ever. Dark Shadows, you may recall, is the gothic soap opera that ran from 1966 to 1971. The main character is an avuncular vampire named Barnabas Collins. The storyline shifting from the 19th century to groovy 60s America at its most mod. Kind of Wuthering Heights meets Austin Powers. Eight hours a day of it. 1,275 episodes in all. Beginning on a train. My name is Victoria Winters. My journey is beginning. A journey that will bring me to a strange and dark place. To the edge of the sea, high atop Widow's Hill. A house called Collinwood. A world I've never known. With people I've never met. It's now 3 o'clock in the morning, and I'm on an Amtrak train, heading towards New York. I think right about now I'm in Syracuse, Ohio. I'm thinking about you. I'm thinking about how this was all your idea to go to the Dark Shadows convention. True, I introduced you to the show, but you're the one who really took it to heart. I feel like I'm going on a journey somehow. A journey to meet people that, I don't know, maybe they'll have something in common with me. When she said she wasn't going to go, I had to think, do I really want to go to this convention? Is this something I still really need to do? And I thought about it, and I thought, I have been thinking about going to this convention since December. It's August now. I have been talking about going to this convention. It's been like on my calendar. I've been preparing. I've been buying clothes for the convention. I've been saving money that like I've been eating ramen noodles for lunch. And I'm going, of course, I'm going to go to this convention, even though this show is just a show to me. I really want to go. It's, I want to I want to talk about Dark Shadows with other people that like Dark Shadows. Regular listeners to This American Life may remember last Halloween, producer Nancy Updike and I visited John and his friends, Thax and Erica, during their weekly ritual of watching Dark Shadows. And I'm here to tell you, after having watched several hours of this, it's boring, it's slow, the acting's terrible, the plot lines are preposterous and apparently take months, sometimes years to resolve. But it's live TV, and it's got that feeling. And... If you watch long enough, you can see people forget lines, scripts are left on beds during scenes, 
prop guys get caught on screen. You can see them through doorways. Flies settle on the actors' faces. And this is part of what John and his friends love when they watch. John watches six hours a week, taped off the Sci-Fi channel. Like, you notice, like, the littlest things you wouldn't notice in a regular show. Like, we noticed tonight that people have stopped knocking on the door three times. They're now knocking on the door four times. I'll go out the back way. No, no, you won't. You'll stay right here. Because they'll, they'll make me go back if they... <laughs> the John thinks they had a, a lengthy meeting deciding that you have to have four knocks instead of three to spice up the plot a little bit. <laughs> it's more exciting. Like the new director said, you know, we, we've got to get rid of this old, this old, the old ways things are going to change around here. <laughs> no more of this three knock stuff. So, John goes to New York on the train alone to a convention hotel on Times Square. Catherine doesn't go because she got a job which um, tends to cut into people's dark shadows habit in a rather major way. I'll be honest, I was really petrified because I was alone in New York. I don't know anybody. And there are probably about 400 people all waiting in line to go into this banquet hall to start the ceremonies, the opening dark shadow convention ceremonies. And I'm walking around and... I know that everybody here, I can walk up to them and start talking about Dark Shadows, but I don't know if I want to at this point. And (laughs) the last time I I actually remembered that feeling was 10 years ago when I had first gone into a gay bar by myself and felt like this was something I had to do by myself. I was all alone. And there I was, like, in this room of people that we all had something in common. You had just come out. I had just come out. We all had something in common. I knew that all these people, we had a similar life experience. We have one thing in common. We have one thing in common. But, for example, with the gay bar, you can't just walk up to somebody and say, so you're a homosexual, (laughs) too. Me, too. (laughs) Testing. I'm now at the convention, and, um, hold on. You use that word? Not yet. Right now, I'm in the Grand Ballroom at the Marriott. It's, uh, opulent beyond belief. I mean, it's, uh, there are four large chandeliers, and there are probably about... I'd say a little bit over 500 people here right now. And they're doing a retrospective on some of the Dark Shadows actors who had passed on. It's just funny. There are 500 people sitting in this grand Paul room watching TV. Not yet. After Hoffman takes his look at it. We all go into the ballroom to watch TV. What? That's the opening ceremony. So, so it's 500 and there's a little tiny TV no, on no, the no, stage? No, no, no. This is huge. <laughs> the TV is huge. I mean, uh, <laughs> it would be like a New there's Yorker There's a little cartoon. black and white 12 inch at the front. <laughs> <laughs> we all gather around. Because when you think about it, it is a convention about watching TV. Yeah. And um, I, hadn't, I hadn't thought 
about that until that exact moment I was going that was and to sort of Something talk to people to you. I'm here to watch TV I'm here to watch TV and I'm here to talk to people about watching TV oh, even uh, the other thing I was there for was to watch it was, God, it was this was so amazing people make Dark Shadows videos. They make their own Dark Shadows videos. What do you mean, like, using footage from the original No, shows? no, no. They create new Dark Shadows videos. Like new either, Dark Shadows episodes? They make new episodes right. themselves? They make new episodes themselves. Like, they get costumes and build sets? Oh, my God. There's this one, there was this one thing. It was amazing. It was a parody of the show. But a parody, like, if you watched it right now, you would go... You know, it it could be funny, but you know, it's all inside jokes. If you watch like Dark Shadows, it's the only way you think this is funny. But it was so elaborate, like they had built, like completely rebuilt the set of like Barnabas's drawing room completely. They had, and then like another set was in a graveyard, and they had completely done the graveyard. This one man played three different characters, and it was edited like it was completely professional. I mean, they must have spent like a ton of money. They had gotten one of the original cast members to come and be in the video. It was so incredibly elaborate, and it was like forty-five minutes long, and it was good and that was like the thing I'm sitting there going this is really good <laughs> your outfit at this point well I, I had I had put on my red burgundy crushed velvet uh, Pierre Cardin jacket that I'd gotten at the Salvation Army for five bucks it had like a little water spot on the back of it I had put on my um rhinestone brooch that looks sort of like a, a flaring sun with this big huge rhinestone which right in I, the middle of your right collar. in the middle which i pinned to my silk silk shirt and black pants and uh, my shoes which were uh, quentin collins shoes from the 1960s show i mean i, I found these john shoes. was the only one there who dressed up at least the first day everyone else was in shorts summer clothes casual clothes which makes a person wonder Am I the weirdo? John would get on the elevator wearing his convention name tag with non-convention hotel guests. And they would look at me, then they would look at my badge, and then they would look at me again. I felt at that moment, I'm like, I'm the weirdo. I'm the weirdo in the elevator. I'm at a Dark Shadows convention. This feeling may be more extreme at a Dark Shadows convention, but frankly, it is common to any convention. Standing on the elevator with your badge, separated from the rest of your tribe, surrounded by civilians, it's easy to feel like a freak, even if you're just a math teacher. But there are freaks, and there are freaks. John, for example, would not get in the 800-person, five-hour line to get autographs from the stars. On the other hand, in three days in the world's most exciting, vibrant city, he never left the hotel. And then he went to this panel where all these issues were resolved. Stars from Dark Shadows were there answering detailed questions from the audience. But this woman gets up at this panel discussion, and she has a pre-prepared statement. And the statement is, um, you know, it was like, I want to thank all of you for all the joy you've given me through my years. And she said, when I watch Dark Shadows, I want to take the high road. I want to think 
of the things Dark Shadows have, has given me, how it's taught me to forgive, how it's taught me the, the joy of friendship, how it's taught me that you need to go on from bad situations. And then she said, and most people will listen to this and they will think that I'm a crackpot. And if I'm a crackpot, so be it. And then she screams into the mic, Dark Shadows lives! And you see this like look on all the actors' faces like fear, like a little bit of fear. <laughs> But it, it dawned on me, this was like the statement that I had felt like, that I had been feeling a little bit. And here she is standing up in this room full of people and proclaiming, I am a crackpot. And I was thinking, well, I'm sort of a crackpot too. And here she was. It was sort of like the alcoholic getting up at the alcoholic convention saying, I am an alcoholic. <laughs> And I, and I thought, I thought, I, I left that and I was just like, God, this is what this whole convention is about. We're like all these misfits. And uh, at this point, I was, I was feeling the sense of community and I was feeling this in the sea of crackpots. I'm a crackpot with them. I'm, I'm brother. I am with you. <laughs> But John, I mean, but you sort of saw her as being nuts. Right. But you felt she was speaking for you when she said that? I felt an empathy with her. And just not not that I'm going to be the one going up there screaming, I am a crackpot, Dark Shadows <laughs> rules. No, you've chosen to say it to 400,000 people over the radio. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God, I'm going to pass out. Dark Shadows rules. <laughs> I've said it. I've said it, Ira. Do you want to say it louder, John? No. You can. I don't want to say it. Oh, on, I don't want to say it any louder. Do you want to stand up? We can. We no, can I don't want to say it. It's okay. I've said it. That's I'm all sorry. I want to say. Recently, I spoke with Chris Crowley the facilities manager at the Moscone Center in San Francisco, one of the biggest convention centers in the world. And he told me there's a kind of life cycle to conventions. They happen in predictable phases. First day, everybody's disoriented. People get lost. People are still individuals. They're not a group just yet. The second day, people start to group and and um, begin to bond, form those little packs of, of people. And by the third day of the convention... There's definite friendships that are made and groups of people that are following each other and you start to recognize who your peers are and you kind of, you create or they create their own little uh, herd mentality, if you will. And all this happened to John. On the first day, he didn't want to talk to anybody. He felt like a loner. By the second, he found some friends at the volunteer desk and the costume ball. And these people seemed like they were pretty fun. So some of the people I had talked to during the day, I said, let's all go back to my room. I've got two bottles of Merlot, and let's all get drunk and talk about dark shadows. But then, sadly, John discovered the inevitable third phase of any convention. He got sick of it. In this case, too much TV, too much merchandise, 
Too many pictures and videos of dark shadows going everywhere all the time. Too much sharing. He woke up the morning of the third day with a cheap wine hangover, never wanting to talk about Barnabas Collins again, or at least for the foreseeable future. He had to force himself to go downstairs to the final banquet, which he'd already paid $45 to attend. And this other guy was sitting next to me, and we talked a little bit about the show, and it was like he, he started talking to me, and he was from Long Island, and he asked me where I was from. I said Chicago, and he said he had gone through Chicago, and and, and uh, he said, changed the subject to sports and about the Bulls, and I don't talk about sports ever. I don't know anything about sports. I don't, I don't even follow the Bulls when the championships are going on. Which actually is very, very hard. It's like trying to it's hard Christmas if you live in Chicago. It, it's, it's, it's everywhere. Like the, and I found myself sitting with this person at this convention talking about the Bulls, talking about the Bulls in Chicago. And, <laughs> and in, your, in your normal life, if somebody uh, were trying to talk to you about sports, you would be thinking to yourself, I wish I could be talking about something like Dark Shadows. Right. And there I was. I was engaging him in talking about the Bulls. And I was saying, you know, when you were in London, did the Bulls championship go on? Where were you? You know, are you a Bulls fan? You know, are people talking? At the, you know, and I was changing the subject. Then we talked about the Cubs. I don't talk about the Cubs. <laughs> when John Connors got home, after a 24-hour train ride, he opened the door and heard the click of his video machine. It had recorded six episodes of Dark Shadows. The day he returned, he said he wasn't sure if he'd be able to watch them. As of today, three days later, he's watched five. Act two. I'm a dishwasher, and having worked in restaurants for over a decade, it would only make sense that I attend the National Restaurant Association's annual gathering. But it's not an organization that welcomes restaurant employees. Quite the contrary. That's Dishwasher Pete, writer and publisher of the zine Dishwasher, an original and funny account of his life as a dishwasher traveling from place to place on a small mission to wash dishes in all 50 states, plus whatever other dishwashing stories and topics he feels like writing about. He was visiting the National Restaurant Association, which is made up of restaurant owners, managers, and suppliers, they are a force to be reckoned with in this country, especially in Washington, D.C. Important opponents of the minimum wage and Bill Clinton's national health care plan a few years ago. The National Restaurant Association's political ally, Newt Gingrich, has stated that their lobbying was instrumental in defeating the health care proposal. So, if this group that worked so hard against the interests of me and my restaurant colleagues were going to hold a powwow, I felt it my responsibility to be there. Riding up the escalator into the middle of Chicago's McCormick Place Convention Center, I was immediately overwhelmed. On display was everything imaginable concerning the food service industry. Every sort of cooking and serving appliance utensil, food products, menu designs, everything. Each booth was highly specialized. If they didn't have an impressive array of napkin rings, then they were peddling theme outfits so a restaurant staff could dress up like pirates or clowns.
I'd come expecting to find groupings of restaurant owners smoking their cigars, rubbing their bellies, and exchanging tales of how they'd stuck it to their employees. So where were they? In the meantime, there was something on my agenda. Something that's always on my agenda. Free food. Plenty of food products were available for sampling. I nibbled my way along. A hunk of chocolate here, a veggie burger there, waffles, chicken tenders, stir-fried, jelly beans. This part didn't seem so bad. That was, until I arrived at one of the booths giving away free beer. There was fierce competition to reach the bar. Being jostled from both sides by guys in suits was a bit unsettling. I hadn't planned to be so informal with these people. I came to the show to be inconspicuous and to inspect, not to socialize and rub shoulders with folks who might otherwise be my boss. After I was finally served, I stood back and watched the boss types push and shove their way to the free beer. I turned and watched another crowd of boss types clamoring to receive free plastic keychains at another booth. This, to me, was weird. I had expected that with this many boss types in one hall, the air would be thick with authority. Instead, these authority figures were giddy over receiving plastic trinkets. It was disturbing to see all these boss types away from their restaurants, like being in the sixth grade and seeing your teacher walking down the street holding her boyfriend's hand. It's just something I don't care to see. But while the gathering of the boss type seemed rather innocuous, I assumed the capitalist parade would be in full swing as I headed to the convention's keynote address given by Republican Senator Bob Dole. So we shouldn't forget for a moment that we live in the greatest country on the face of the earth. By the time I took my seat at the back of the room, Dole was well underway. I listened. I became confused. I think Dole was confused too. He was supposed to be giving the keynote address to a group of restaurateurs. Instead, he gave what amounted to be a campaign speech, as if he were still running in the election that he lost last year. And we shouldn't forget for a moment, the people who came ahead of us made sacrifices for us. I was desperate for any morsel related to restaurants to come from Dole's mouth. It never came. I began to sense that Dole wasn't quite sure where he was. I had assumed he was yet another political lackey of the National Restaurant Association. But now he seemed more like the grandfather at a family dinner who babbles incomprehensibly while the rest of the family is too polite to draw attention to it. As Dole droned on, streams of people, apparently having heard enough, headed for the exits. Then Dole took questions from those remaining. I had hoped to ask him something like, Hey man, why are you and the National Restaurant Association always trying to keep the dishwashers down? But in each of his responses, as he drifted away from the question, I realized I couldn't ask a snot-nosed question of this absent-minded old man. Thinking instead, maybe he could provide some grandfatherly advice. Mine was the last question. Hello, Mr. Doe. Um, here at the National, National Restaurant Association show, I was wondering if you had any words of advice for the dishwashers in the nation. I'll just keep washing be my advice. I was excited because mine was the only question he actually answered. Just keep washing. At first it seemed like a good-natured slap-on-the-back, thumbs-up piece of advice. But as the band played on, Dole's words kept echoing through my head. Just keep washing. Yep. Just keep washing. Day after day. 
just keep washing. Week after week, month after month, just keep washing. Year after year after year. What the hell kind of advice is that? Well, Dishwasher Pete searches the National Restaurant Association for traces of the American dream, one that Bob Dole would actually approve of. That's in a minute. From Public Radio International, when our program continues. American Life from Ira Glass. Each week in our program, of course, we choose a theme, bring you a wide variety of different kinds of stories on that theme. Today's program, Conventions, we are in the middle of Act Two. Dishwasher Pete, a real life dishwasher at the convention of the National Restaurant Association. Working as a dishwasher, I'm often told, start here and someday you may own your own restaurant. Bosses tell this to dishwashers all the time. And if that's true, it meant I was surrounded by tens of thousands of former dishwashers at the restaurant convention. Do you have much experience washing dishes yourself? I can't say that I have. I, I, I'm only at home. <laughs> you haven't done that in the past? To... No. No, it's really not that effective. Dishwashers are invisible to most restaurant customers. But why was such an important part of the industry being ignored at this gathering that celebrated every aspect of the restaurant world? I set out to find some of my fellow dishwashers. I stopped passers-by, asking them if they'd seen any dishwashers walking around. I received one negative response after another. One restaurant owner snidely told me she wouldn't think of bringing her dishwashers to the show. But then I realized there was one place I was sure to find some of my dish brethren. Like a moth to the flame, I headed straight for the Hobart display. As the largest manufacturers of commercial dishwashing equipment, Hobart is legendary amongst those of us who wash dishes for a living. Their model dish machines would surely be staffed by real live dishwashers. Hobart's display was quite a spectacle, buzzing with activity. With free beer and dozens of chirpy sales reps wearing matching bright blue shirts, I half expected there to be bikini-clad women lounging atop their displayed dish machines. But my hopes for finding dishwashing camaraderie didn't pan out. First of all, there were no dishwashers operating the machines. In fact, the machine sat idle, and I didn't find much kinship with the Hobart sales force. Hobart's Barry Baylock showed off their new sink, the Turbo Wash, that circulated water to enhance the soaking of pots and pans. With a dish machine, you've got to have somebody to man it. With this, you don't. So you're able to de-staff your kitchen, so to speak. So it's a big labor saver. 
yes, it's more expensive than a three-compartment sink, but it's less expensive than having a full-time employee. This shows up every day. A full-time employee doesn't. What do you think about the, um, the dishwashers who may possibly face layoffs because of uh, a labor-saving labor saving device such as this? This does not take a very qualified person. It allows one person to do several jobs within the dishroom activity instead of having two people to do two separate jobs. So it actually is going to help out giving more job security to the person that is working in that dishroom area. Now, now why would that be? Well, because they can do more within the dishroom. They can operate the dish machine. They Both Hobart sales reps that I talked to told me that not only had they never held dishwashing jobs, but they hated doing the chore at home. What sort of dish machine representatives were these? To me, they were like surgeons who hated the sight of blood. I left the Hobart display a bit dejected and checked out some of their competitors. The Champion dish machine companies couldn't have been more different than the Hobart display. They were, unlike the massive bright and chirpy Hobart crew, just a couple of middle-aged guys wearing drab brown suits. I spoke to a guy named Peter for a while, asking if any dishwashers had visited the booth. None had. As I was about to walk away, he asked if I was dishwasher Pete. It was kind of spooky. My cover was blown. Peter introduced me to Hank Colt, the president of Champion. He had written me a year prior requesting a copy of my publication, Dishwasher. I kind of couldn't believe that the company's head honcho would bother to attend such an event, but was even more surprised that he remembered who I was. Dishwasher Pete goes dishwasher all. Pete. This is he goes his he goes all over the country washing dishes, and he writes about them and puts out this little book every every week. It's funnier than the devil. The problem we wanted to put some of his articles on the web page and send them out to some of the consultants and and all that, but we have to edit them. They're a little bit spicy for some of them. How's the show been going? The show's you? been fine. Um, we're not overwhelmed with with. While Hank and I talked dishwashing, I, I snuck peeks over at the, the Hobart booth. It seemed ridiculous that I had previously scoffed at the champion guys, and thought that I'd find solidarity among the Hobart crew. The Hobart folks now look like the in crowd at high school, the jocks and cheerleaders who are popular yet shallow. Meanwhile, here were the nerdier champion guys, who could relate more to where I was coming from, though not entirely. While Hank and I did have a good conversation. We were from opposite ends of the spectrum. He, the president of a dish machine company, me, a dishwasher. I still needed to find an actual fellow dish dog. As the show was winding down, I left the crowds in commotion, descending three flights of stairs, heading deep down into the bowels of the convention center until I came upon a door. I pushed a button next to the door, and moments later, it buzzed open. I wandered through the labyrinth of corridors. Peeking around corners and acting as if I belonged there whenever I encountered someone. Then, I heard a familiar hum in the distance. How you doing? All right. So you're the man behind the scenes, huh? You're the man behind the scenes washing the dishes. Yeah, yeah. His name was Jesse, and he was working alone in the cavernous dish room. Unloading dishes from a huge 30-foot-long conveyor belt-style machine, just like the ones on display upstairs. 
But do you think there's anything our radio audience should know about uh, the man behind the scenes down here uh, in the dish room? I've really got nothing to say except that it's. I like the job. I like the. You know, it's keeping me out of trouble out there in the streets and everything. You know, it's not hard work. The the employers are nice people. You know, very easy to get along with. As Jesse returned to the head of the dish machine once again to load dishes into it, I felt at ease for the first time all day. I watched Jesse loading the machine from afar, feeling like I needed to speak with him more, that our bond needed to be acknowledged. But then I noticed the clean dishes exiting the machine, and I knew what to do. I put down the tape recorder and got to work. I walked over and unloaded the clean dishes. Dishwasher Pete Zine Dishwasher is available, is available for a measly dollar at P.O. Box 8213, Portland, Oregon, 3, When Worlds Collide. This story begins at a convention, at two conventions, actually. John Perry Barlow was at a convention in 1993 for the Next Computer, the machine that Stephen Jobs created after he co-founded Apple Computers. The other convention, the American Psychiatric Association. Our story starts on the border of those two. John Perry Barlow is a former rancher, song lyricist, now head of the Electronic Frontier Foundation. He travels everywhere talking about computers, and that is what brought him to the Moscone Center for a convention in 1993. And I was supposed to be giving a, I was supposed to be the MC at a, at a Steve Jobs celebrity roast. Mm-hmm. And uh, across the way, the psychiatrists were having a seminar or something. So Before we even go anywhere, I mean, it really does sound like a when worlds collide sort of thing. Oh, totally. Yeah, yeah, it was. Because yeah, he because the thing about a convention is that is that each world is so distinctly its own right. world with its own concerns and its own priorities and its own paradigm. Oh yeah, and 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 you know both of these groups of people uh, were so distinct from one another. I mean, uh, psychiatrists as a group have a look, and uh, next users. This was a. Next was one of the only computers I've ever been around where the whole notion of design was really important to the product. Right. Um, elegance of design. And it attracted the strangest kind of, of uh, hybrid, which was sort of like Unix weenies by Armani combination. <laughs> okay. And and describe the um and describe what what the psychiatrists tend to look like. What was their look? Well, the psychiatrists were all you know, the sort of Jules Pfeiffer cartoon psychiatrists, uh, tweed jackets, <laughs> uh, uh slightly rumpled. Right. Um 
and you know no distinct difference between the men and the women really except for this one person I was standing uh, outside the entrance to the ballroom where I was going to supposedly roast Mr. Jobs and the psychiatrists were all milling around over there in their corner and I saw a woman standing with her back to me uh, in a she actually looked dressed to be more one of us than one of them in the sense that she had this this uh, very crisp Armani look from behind mm-hmm. long blonde hair and she turned and looked over her left shoulder and looked right at me. And I've never had an experience like this before or since. I mean, I, I've always thought that the whole idea of love at first sight was one of those things that was invented by lady novelists with three names from the South, right? Right. Uh, because how can this work? What's the What's the process by which you would recognize something that profound yeah she looked and we looked we started looking at each other and we didn't avert our gaze either of us for probably 45 seconds i mean we just locked on the beam and i felt like uh i felt like i was having an hallucination i mean i felt like i was hearing voices uh it was it was the strangest thing uh and i kind of step back and rub my eyes and try to figure out what I was going to do about this. You literally rubbed your eyes? Literally. No, it was an odd... The whole thing just felt really dreamlike. It I was going to say, it's like in a story. I, I, it, it went into this surreal state. And um, so I... I finally, I thought, well, I've got, I, I'm not going to, whatever's going on between this person and me, I am definitely not going to let this moment pass without investigation because I haven't, I haven't experienced this before. So I, uh, I circled her a couple of times and, and then finally I, I came over to her and I said, you know, you're something. And she said, so are you. I said, well, uh, where are you from? And she said, uh, I mean, I, I didn't know. I assumed that she was part of our show. I thought that actually what she was, it didn't occur to me that she was associated with the psychiatrist because she didn't look anything like them. And I thought that what she was probably was what is, uh, I wish there were a better term for this, but the general computer trade show term for this is booth bimbo which is somebody who stands in the in the booth selling the incredibly difficult to use software uh, who's actually an uh a model or an actress or something who doesn't know anything about the software but the 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 marketers sort of dangle her out as bait and, right and then you know once once she's uh, gotten these poor innocent hackers to wander over so they can talk to the beautiful girl then wham they get them Right, geeks move in. Right, the geeks move in and hustle them off and sell them <laughs> software. And um, but I just time honored practice. Right, exactly. It you know it works. <laughs> uh, and so I just assumed she must be a booth bimbo because she was much too beautiful to be, uh, well, a computer hacker. 
Or a psychiatrist. Oh, and, and that didn't even dawn on me that she was a psychiatrist, which right. in fact she was. Uh, but I, I said, well, where are you from? And she said, well, I'm from a little town in British Columbia. And I said, well, that's interesting. Uh, I'm from a little town in Wyoming, which is kind of like British Columbia. Mm-hmm. Uh, where do you live now? And she said, New York. And I said, well, that's even more interesting because that's where I live. And I said, where do, where, where do you live in New York? And she said, 19th and 3rd. And I said, well, that's not too far from where I live. I'm, I'm down at the lower end of 5th Avenue. And she said, where? And I said, well, 5th uh, and 9th. And she said, really, which building? And I said, um, it's the old 5th uh, Avenue Hotel. It's uh, 24 5th Avenue. And she said, really? Uh, well, it turns out that I just got an apartment in that building. And in fact, she had just gotten an apartment uh, precisely two stories above mine in the same building. So, so there I was with this, this woman that I had uh, an instantaneous and inexplicable attachment to uh, who was about to move into my apartment building. And we just went off together and, and actually moved in together, really, literally, uh, a week after we met. So when you were at the convention with her, you spent you just spent all your time together, basically. Oh uh, yeah, from that point forward, and and I also it was it was a great opportunity for me to introduce her to my world in a lot of its other dimensions because uh, the Grateful Dead was having a concert in Sacramento, mm-hmm. uh, one of the nights of these joint conventions, and so we went over and she saw her first Dead concert, and this is a person who would never have been caught dead at mm-hmm. a dead concert. I Explain mean, your connection with the Grateful Dead. Oh, uh, I, I, I spent many, many years as their sort of uh, junior varsity songwriter. There, right. were, there were two songwriters, and I was the, the lesser of the two. And so what did she think of the concert? What did she make of it? She liked it a lot. Uh, she, thought that, she thought the Deadheads were fascinating. She thought the music was, was great. Uh, I mean, but the other thing was that we were just completely, hopelessly besotted with each other. I mean, you know, I I could have taken her to a dogfight, I think, and she would have thought it was okay. Uh, It was uh, just one of those, one of those completely unexpected acts of providence where where two worlds collided and something wonderful came from the point that they touched. Do you think that if you would have met this woman in some other setting, just on the street or, or you know, seeing her in the lobby of the apartment building that, that you lived in after she had moved in there, do you think that you would have had this moment quite so powerfully? Or well, do you think that there was something about being at a convention where one is just open to experience in a way that one wouldn't be um, elsewhere. I, actually, I think she was, she was at, the, at that moment, she was more inclined to judge things more on, their, on the basis of their appearance. Uh, and 
what she mainly saw was a guy in a real sharp suit. <laughs> the next day when I returned to my normal style of dress, it was, she said, well, is it, wait a second, is this how you usually dress? And I said, yeah. And she said, oh, well, all right. But do you think that if you had seen her just, just walking into your building three weeks after that for the first time, do you I think, think that this moment would have happened? I think that it probably would have happened anyway. There was something about this particular connection that would have overridden any of the surrounding noise in the data. I mean, I felt like uh, I had I had finally met another another member of my tribe, and and felt that before I said anything to her, she said anything to me. What ha- what happened with her family? Well, what what happened was we we had both had the flu, and she was a young woman. I mean, uh, quite a bit younger than me, um, and very healthy. Uh, took extremely good care of herself. Uh, athletic and and, uh, but we'd both had the flu, and it had been a real nasty flu, uh, and it had had us both kind of hitting on maybe five out of eight for close to a month. Yeah. And uh, I had gone out to Los Angeles to give a speech, and Tim Leary had gotten some tickets to a Pink Floyd concert at the Rose Bowl. And she was going to come out and join me to go to this Pink Floyd concert with, with Tim. Um. Uh, that all got bollocks up. We ended up going by ourselves, having a very long, complicated evening with a lot of waiting in traffic and looking for a car and whatnot. And, Go, and going off the, by by yourselves, you and you, you and Cynthia, Cynthia, Cynthia or you and her. And, and, okay, yeah. You know, and and over the course of this evening, we decided that even though we had been sort of of the opinion that, that we didn't want to think about the future that much, um, she said, "Well, I know that." I know that we're not supposed to think about the future, but I—I uh, I think that you and I should have children. And if we're going to do that, I would love to—I st- would love to start soon. And if we're going to do that, then I think we should be married. How do you feel about those things? And I said, fine, sure, no problem. Anyway, the next day, uh, I had a meeting, and um, this, the next day was a Sunday, and I I had a red eye back to New York that evening, and Cynthia was going to go on that, and I said, look, you know, you've been sick, and you've got patients tomorrow, and why don't you just take an afternoon flight, and I'll I'll be home to see you before you go off to work. And so uh, she took an afternoon flight, and I took her down to the airport. And uh, um, gave each other a great big kiss, and and she said, uh, she said, nothing can keep us apart, baby. We were made for each other. And then she just walked onto the plane and went to sleep, took a nap, and uh, turned out that the that the virus that we'd both had, the flu virus, had uh, 
attacked her heart and had been chewing away on it for the previous 10 days or so and it pretty well consumed the pericardium and so eventually was so compromised that as she was sleeping she started to fibrillate and just died she was two days short of her 30th birthday they went to tell her to put her seatbelt on coming into JFK. She was dead and had been for a while. Oh, my God. So it was, uh, I mean, this whole episode from from the moment I saw her there in the in the hallway of the ANA uh, to the moment where I walked, watched her walk onto the aircraft uh, was... one of the really central passages of my life. And after that, everything was different. And smaller. Well, no, not... uh, Actually, I wouldn't say that. Uh, In many many ways, not at all, because one of the things that came out of it was that prior to this, I didn't believe in the soul. I mean, I think that, that, you know, within us were two spirits that it all always I mean there's really just no way to say this without sounding incredibly sappy but you know uh, we were we were the same soul and having seen that that changes everything now that you had this experience with her do you find that you have this experience um all the time in a smaller form where you'll meet a group of strangers and there'll be one whose eyes strikes you and you think, okay, this I could see a part of this thing. Absolutely. I mean, I feel like, uh, you know, I feel an ability to attach, you know, on a moment-to-moment basis that is completely unlike anything that I felt prior to that. and you know, it's. I think it's sometimes a little disconcerting to other people because it's it's genuine on my side, and people are not used to having somebody just dock emotionally that instantaneously. I, for one thing, you know, I feel like I can see their souls. You know, their souls are visible to me. things that happened as a consequence of this is that that for a while there I if if I stopped moving the pain got so bad that I couldn't stand it so I I fell into a into a lifestyle of continuous motion and uh, that gradually became an economic uh, adaptation and now I just simply live on the road Hmm. pretty much I mean, I flew 270-some-odd thousand miles last year just on one airline. God damn. Uh, I mean, I'm a... just hearing you say that. It's like you want to die on a plane, too. <laughs> well, you know, it's a funny thing. I, no, I'm not particularly interested in dying on a plane, but, I mean, that's kind of like... I really feel like the stratosphere is my is my church. 
That's where you feel like you can contact her. Well, yeah, kinda. I mean, I, I, I feel there's something about being up there that makes me feel like I'm, I'm closer to her. Yeah. No, I totally understand that because it's the last place where she was. Yeah, but it's more than that. I mean, you know, it's like last night I was flying here to Salt Lake from New York, and and I looked out, and it was just. Um, uh, you know, I don't know that I believe in heaven or anything quite like that, but I mean, it, it looked exactly like heaven in in those in the paintings of that, that that period of the late Renaissance when they really started to get light, you know, and understand how to do light and clouds. You know, that really clear kind of blue. Yeah, exactly. Really and, pale, and, clear blue. You know, there were layers and layers and layers of uh, of different colors of clouds, and they were all catching the sunlight and golds and blues and yeah uh and i thought well you know what a great life it is that puts you in this this unbelievably holy environment on such a regular basis for me there would be the additional thing and and i wonder if this is for you too that if i mean maybe this is worn off now because you fly so much but i mean every time i would get on a plane I would just think, okay, this is her setting. You know what I mean? It's like this is oh, yeah. this is where I left her, and she could be in any one of these seats. You know, and, you oh, just, yeah. and it's hard, it would be very hard for me to not be picturing her in yeah. one of those seats and just sleeping. Yeah. No, I mean she's there. E- even uh, now, even just how long? Oh, sure. Ago? Yeah. No, I mean that's a, as I say, it's not something that goes away. As far yeah. as I can tell, it's a permanent fixture, and that's okay. I mean, I'm, uh, I'm glad to have it. But anyway, it was a, it was a hell of a convention, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, uh, I'm, I'm I'm sure glad I went to that uh, Steve Jobs celebrity roast. Well, our program was produced today by Nancy Updike and myself with Elise Spiegel and Julie Snyder, senior editor Paul Tuff, contributing editors Jack Hitt, Margie Rockland, and consigliere Sarah Val. You know, you can listen to most of our programs for free on the Internet at www.thislife.org. This American Life is distributed by Public Radio International. Funding for our program has been provided by Amazon.com, helping you find your next favorite book with over 13 million titles online at Amazon.com. Other funding comes from the Capital Group Companies, investing for individuals and institutions throughout the world, and sponsor of the American Funds Group of Mutual Funds, and the Ford Foundation, a resource for innovative people and institutions worldwide. Out from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, the National Endowment for the Arts, and the listeners of WBEZ Chicago, WBEZ Management Oversight by Tori Malatia. No, I don't want to say it any longer. I don't want to say it any longer. No, I don't want to say it. It's okay. I've said it. I'm Ira Glass. Back next week with more stories of this American life. Dark Shadows Lives! PRI Public Radio International